Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to another episode of LawPod. My name is Mark Hanna and today's podcast is on the subject of defamation law and privacy law in Northern Ireland. We have a great panel to discuss this important subject today. All views, I should say at the outset, are those of myself and the other participants and not those of Queen's University. I'm joined here in the Moot Courtroom in the School of Law, socially distanced of course, uh, with Paul Tweed, celebrated lawyer to the stars, but more importantly for us, someone with extensive experience of defamation and privacy law here in Northern Ireland, in London, Dublin, and in the US. Peter Gervin, a barrister and someone who has been at the forefront of a number of contentious and high-profile cases also, and who has considerable experience in the areas of defamation, privacy, and data protection law, including claims against social media giants like Facebook and Google. We are joined also by Sam McBride, journalist, political editor of the newsletter, sorry, and author of the book, Burned the Inside Story of the Cash for Ice Scandal, and Northern Ireland's Secretive New Elite, a book which has been said to raise profound and troubling questions about the future of government in Northern Ireland, and yet a publication which has not gone unhindered from threats of libel suits. We're also joined remotely from London, by Jessica Nivonen from the Civil Society Organization Index and Censorship, which was one of the key organizations behind the push for reform of law in England and Wales, and which now investigates the use of vexatious litigation and slaps, that's strategic lawsuits against public participation against journalists and media outlets across Europe. And last but not least, Olivia Kane, a partner at the law firm Carson McDowell, who has significant experience representing newspapers broadcasters, social media platforms, and filmmakers in defending defamation actions here in Northern Ireland and abroad. So welcome to you all, and thank you all for being here. Uh, Paul Tweed, I'd like to start with you, if I may. Sure. Uh, in 2013, England and Wales adopted the Defamation Act. One of the key reasons for adopting the legislation was to address the chilling effect that defamation laws in the UK were having on free speech uh, at that time, and to realise the UK's obligations under European Convention on Human Rights, Article 10, Right to Freedom of Expression. Never even seen the light of day here in Northern Ireland because the then Finance Minister, Sammy Wilson, declined to introduce it to the Assembly. Why shouldn't people here in Northern Ireland enjoy the same rights as people in other parts of the UK and indeed in other parts of the world? when it comes to free speech and freedom of information. This is about democracy, isn't it? Well, first of all, the 2013 Act is now, in my opinion, totally redundant anyways. It's totally irrelevant in the era, uh, the global era we're living in of the online social media and search engine giants. It does absolutely nothing for that, particularly with the news that Twitter announced yesterday that they're talking about introducing a Snapchat-type scenario where a tweet disappears after 24 hours. So what use 
They've got an innocent dissemination defence. We, we must put them on notice to give them an opportunity to take it down. Uh, that's not going to be much use in a scenario where the thing disappears after 24 hours. So, uh, I mean, personally, uh, I have no real strong objections. I don't think the, two, the 2013 Act, I was in a minority of one on the Ministry of Justice panel that debated it at the time before it was introduced. Uh, I thought the, uh, the article that they, that they had debated a long time over as to how to deal with the social media uh, companies is now absolutely redundant. I mean, you've got to put them on notice and you've got to go through all these procedures. Total waste of time. So far as freedom of speech is concerned in Northern Ireland, uh, you know, uh, I personally uh, don't really do much litigation in Northern Ireland. I can count on one hand the number of defamation cases I've got running. And to be honest with you, I don't really particularly... Uh, enjoy or have any desire to litigate here. Um, they, they, they keep people to keep talking about libel tourism. I'm still waiting for the one, just one example of libel tourism. I don't mind. I've, I've invited the US Senate to come up with one, and they couldn't. Uh, I've asked the Ministry of Justice committees, different ones I've sat on, and nobody's been able to actually come up with an example. So and it's, there certainly aren't any in Belfast, so far as I'm aware, unless uh, Olivia can maybe answer that uh, better if, if the Sunday world are getting a lot of Hollywood A-listers taking them on. But I say, that's not within my knowledge. So in terms of why the 2013 Act shouldn't apply to Northern Ireland, I think it's just irrelevant. Uh, if people feel strongly about it, yeah, fine, like introduce it. Um, it's, it's great for lawyers. I mean, <laughs> in England now, it's an absolute joke where the lawyers are getting dramatically more uh, than the uh, claimants are in damages. I mean, you're talking about multi-million fees. The Johnny Depp case, there's a, a recent example of a suspect. The fees, based on my experience of just coming out of a libel action there at the end of last year, is probably about three to five million. Uh, it's just farcical because there's so many thresholds to consider, different aspects to meaning, serious harm, whatever. It's just, it's a lawyer's bean feast. I think it's a big, big mistake introducing it. Uh, the costs in Northern Ireland are lower, uh, so perhaps that might be less of a concern to the media. But I am sort of hypocrite number one here, having spent uh, a large part of my, the last four decades, uh, taking action against uh, broadcasters, uh, and the traditional uh, print media. I'm now uh, <laughs> trying to defend them because I think you know you have Facebook sucking all the advertising uh, out of the print media. They are lifting all high-quality investigation reports and articles and publishing without paying for them. And the 18 to 23-year-old demographic in the United States, over 80% of them get their uh, main news from Facebook. So. Um, while uh, you can start firing eggs at me or whatever, uh, you know, in my view, anything that protects the mainstream media from, you know, scenarios where they are put at a totally unfair and uneven disadvantage to the likes of Facebook should be welcome. But it's not the 2013 Act. It's, it's uh, like just totally so uh, uh, inappropriate now and so uh, unnecessary. Um, it's just not worth debating, in my opinion. Well, I want to come to the issue of social media and the internet and, and you know, Twitter and, and the social media platforms, as you say. I'll come to that later. But, you know, there's no doubt that they have made some of the act redundant. But do you recognise that in Northern Ireland there is an issue with the free press and with, you know, that we don't enjoy the same rights uh, to free press and freedom of expression that they do in England and Wales, for example, because they have the 2013 Act and because that has raised the threshold a bit. I don't agree with that at all. I say for the simple reason it's costing, it's putting, you know, publishers' lights out just having to pay for the legal costs. Uh, you know, damages, you, you did get, they've, they've abandoned the juries. You know, I do feel the juries should stay. I think, you know, in, in 40 years, uh, you know, I had juries in, in time where there were personal injury claims as well, back in the early 1980s. And I've always found that, you know, seven good men and women uh, from whatever background 
uh, come, tend to get uh, the right result and outcome. There have been in recent times, particularly in Dublin, uh, uh, jury awards over you know, one million, whatever. I'm totally opposed to that. I think there should be a cap on jury awards, uh, but that cap should not be dictated by a scenario of neutering uh, the general public uh, you know, adjudicating in this. I mean, you've got to remember, in most of the cases that I've dealt with over the years, and invariably it's a lawyer gets criticised, i.e. me, these are people from all aspects of society. Whether you go back to 1986 to the, uh, the Chocolate Claire case involving two senior counsel in the Sunday world where they got 50,000 each, that was a working class jury came to that. They heard all the evidence, they realised how it impacted the individuals and they came to that decision, came to that conclusion. The newspaper in that particular case had every opportunity imaginable to settle a case for a modest sum, whatever payments to charity, they didn't. This happens all the way along the line, whether it's a broadcaster or whatever. Most people, I regard it, and I gave an interview a couple of weeks ago, which was widely published last week, I regard it as a personal failure if any of my plaintiff clients end up in the witness box having to give evidence. So to answer your question, I don't think that the, that the, the, the media here are at any more of a disadvantage than the media in England, uh, or are at a better, or if they, or plaintiffs are at a better advantage here. As I say, Belfast most certainly would not be my first choice of a forum to litigate for libel. Absolutely not. It would be, I mean, I would be Dublin uh, any time, and second would be London. Um, Belfast would be way down the list. So, so would you say that stories maybe that would be published in the press that would be of general public interest that they are always seeing the light of the day here. Is it not the case that if, if there's a threat that the, there's going to be a publication of a story of maybe public interest about a politician maybe and yeah. that a politician doesn't like, all it takes is maybe a letter or a phone call from someone like yourself. And let's be honest, it probably would be you if they could get you, you know, it'd be effective to get you. And a letter or a phone call from someone like yourself would put an end to that story. Well, that, that's not correct. I mean, and people keep saying this to me. I mean, some of the lawyers I'm up against, the in-house lawyers, are 50 times better lawyers than I am. Uh, I mean, Sam would be in a better position to, to answer the question as to the impact uh, on the media. But um, I certainly don't, we don't take cases on and we don't write, you know, far out letters just because a client, you know, wants to stop a story. I've got to be satisfied on the merits. I may not always get it right, but I've got to be absolutely satisfied on the merits. And as I say, for if, if that was the case and if somebody was to tell me that the 2013 Act would make a difference to that, then I certainly would be saying, yes, let's consider that their, their legislative changes are required. I don't believe it's a case, but... Well, the merits is going to be something different here in Northern Ireland than it will be in England and Wales. Let me put it to Sam McBride then. Sam, would you agree then that the Defamation Act and raising the bar wouldn't make much of a difference here and that, that journalists have a fair go of it here under the laws that we have in Northern Ireland? Um, no, um, fundamentally not, um, and I can tell you that from my experience. Um, Paul is saying that in his experience the 2013 Act is redundant here. Um, that's certainly not my experience. Um, there is a difficulty when it comes to social media. Social media is out of control. Um, we all know that if we're on social media, and to a certain extent all of us um, suffer there. Um, but we're, 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 we're talking from my perspective here in terms of my, what anything that I can contribute from my personal experience about traditional media, um, about in-depth investigations, about profound matters of, of public interest where people who are wealthy, powerful, can engage the likes of Paul, can send off very threatening letters, um, and can cr try, try to quash stories which they do not want. Um, I, 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 I can also say that um, Paul, Paul says that he doesn't think the media here operate 
in any way at a disadvantage to our colleagues in the rest of the UK? Well, I can certainly say that within my company that is not the case. Um, we are owned by JPI Media, they wear Johnston Press, they own lots of regional newspapers across the UK, about 200 local and regional newspapers, and there are specific structures that we have in place because of the Defamation Act in uh, Northern Ireland, or rather the 2013 Act, not being extended to Northern Ireland. So I am at a specific disadvantage to my colleagues in the Scotsman, in the Yorkshire Post, in the Sheffield Star, in all sorts of newspapers across the UK, um, because our company recognises that we simply get far more spurious, frankly, um, libel actions in Northern Ireland than they do. There, there, there simply is not this issue um, in the regional media, certainly, in other parts of the UK. And I think it's, it's important for us to actually be clear as to what we're talking about here. So um, we're, we're talking a little bit in the abstract about the 2013 Act. What, what does it actually involve? We've heard what it doesn't do in terms of social media. What does it do to help free speech? So by not extending it to Northern Ireland, secretly vetoing it without the public knowing, it was only revealed in the House of Lords by Lord Rana, um, which, which I think tells its own story as to the confidence of those who did block it, as to the strength of their arguments in front of the, uh, of the Northern Ireland legislature in an in a open forum. Um, but by, by doing that, it means that protections for free speech here are weaker than other parts of the UK. Um, it means that there is a specific difficulty um, for public interest journalism, um, which is in the public interest, which can be defended as being in the public interest, um, and also very significantly for honest scientific research, um, which can be defended in the courts. That doesn't exist here. That's a massive issue for academics. Um, I think it's disappointing, to be honest, that the universities here haven't done more to raise that. That doesn't impact on me at all. Um, I'm arguing about this from a journalistic perspective, but that does um, impact on them, and it is a chilling effect um, on, on their work as well. And I think also this, this is something which has been looked at in some detail. So this was blocked in secret by the DUP. The DUP then agreed to set up a commission to look at this. They asked Dr. Dr. Andrew Scott, who is a um, very significant academic in this area, to look at this. He spent several years looking at this. He, he talked to all sides of this, um, and he came to very considered conclusions. And so having been given terms of reference by a DUP minister, who was from the party that had blocked this, he came to the conclusion that that decision was wrong. He came to the conclusion that we did need reform of the libel laws in Northern Ireland. And more than that, he came forward with two draft bills. So there's no real excuse here for the legislature not acting, but there is a very significant problem. And so from your understanding, why has that not been acted on, the Scott report that you're talking about, which recommends reform? Well, I think if you, if you look at what Lord Lester, the eminent lawyer um, who represented the Irish News in that appalling case, which was really a stain on the Northern Ireland justice system, I think, um, where the, the national newspapers in London were flying in restaurant critics to try to basically try to defend a really fundamental element of journalism for um, many, many years, the ability to give an honest review of an establishment, however scathing that might be. Um, and there was a perverse outcome there. It was overturned on appeal, and that, that was good. Um, but Lord Lester acted in that case, and his verdict on what happened here when he looked at it after the, uh, the, the uh, Sammy Wilson decision to block this in secret in 2012 was that really he, he could see no reason logically or reasonably for them having done this other than that politicians in Northern Ireland like to sue more than their counterparts in other parts of the UK, and they wanted to protect their privilege. That's certainly my experience of them. And is there like a bigger picture that's here, I think that Paul touched on, you know, that it's that we're not just dealing here with the issue of free press and, and investigative journalism, which it must, investigative journalism is a small fraction of the publications that are out there, you know, on the web uh, and in the traditional media outlets, which 
with especially with Twitter and things like that, you do have so many more opportunities to ruin people's reputation and, and people with no accountability otherwise. And then you add into that, you know, the issue of the Levinson inquiry and what it's revealed about the press and, and the whole economics of it and really what the press has had to do, you know, for clickbait and, and to get it's a race to the bottom in that respect. So are you recommending that there should be reform here? Uh, and does that reform, you know, does it really address that wider issue? And is it worth it in, for the small amount of publication that actually could qualify as investigative journalism? Well, I think it's very clearly worth it because what was in the 2013 Act is of no comfort whatsoever to somebody who is rooting through somebody's bin to try to uncover an affair or something of that nature, unless there is some overwhelming public interest in that of, of hypocrisy from a politician who has said that um, that's something that they oppose or something of that nature. This is about in-depth investigative journalism. This is about honest scientific research. Um, there are clear examples in my own experience and other people's experience of where this is happening. Um, I could my walls with libel letters, threats, many of them from Paul Tweed um, on behalf of his clients. He says that he is always satisfied that when he does that, those are not spurious actions. Well, some of them were dropped, in my view, because they were spurious actions. And Paul's acting for his clients. Um, it's right that they have representation. It's right that they have good representation from a good lawyer. Um, but this is not simply um, about defending people's reputations where they have a right to defend that reputation because that reputation would be intact. Think about the case of Ian Paisley Jr. recently with the Daily Telegraph. We can talk about this because it's over now. Um, he threatened to sue the Daily Telegraph, a newspaper of considerable integrity, um, which committed deep resources to investigating what he was doing on holiday, taking freebie holidays from a foreign dictatorial regime. Um, he was then lobbying on behalf of that regime. This was clearly um, matters of profound public importance. He threatened to sue over that. He said, my, my lawyer, Paul Tweed, has sent um, a, a letter to the newspaper. It was over very quietly dropped, it seemed to me, when after that the Parliamentary um, Standards Commissioner looked at this in great detail, ruled that he had broken Parliament's rules and handed him the biggest suspension in the history of Parliament. Now, is that acting in the public interest or is that acting in the interest of somebody who has money and has power and can buy a very good lawyer and can try to cow the media? Well, let's put that to Paul yeah. then. I mean, those are stories that are in the public interest, yeah. aren't they not, Paul? Okay, well, just a point of correction just for Sam there, and I know you didn't intend it, but a writ of summons was issued in that case, actually. It wasn't a question just of a letter being sent out, although it's probably academic. I take instructions from a client. It doesn't matter whether it's Ian Paisley Jr., Jerry Adams, or whatever. I act for all the, par the political parties. I act for more journalists than any other law firm in, the, in Ireland, I would put that to the test. I also act for a number of newspapers. So it's not just a question of me going out and firing out, peppering uh, letters of claim or whatever you know, that, that you're talking about there. A lot of cases don't proceed because a client can't afford to take on a media. As you say yourself, the newsletter is owned by a fairly major media company in England, and you know, there, there may or may not be insurance involved there in the background, but certainly most publishers do. It's, it's a massive ordeal. It's a massive, massive strain for anyone to take on. It doesn't matter whether they're a politician or whether they're, they're a, 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 you know, somebody who's taxi driver or whatever. It's a big ordeal. And the media have massive power. It's, it's now fading into insignificance compared to the likes of Facebook and Twitter and these other companies. 
I am not without sympathy to what you're saying. I mean, and I would not want, and I'm, I feel very, very disappointed that you know I would be perceived as somebody that's just firing letters out to try and silence people going at that. I, I can take, only talk about my experience, obviously. No, that's fine, and you're entitled to do that. But I'm just saying, I, I look at the case, I see it, a client comes in, gives me instructions. We turn away at least eight out of 10 cases. Olivia will be glad to hear literally just about one hour ago, I turned away a case uh, that, was, that somebody wanted to bring against Sunday World. Not necessarily, because I don't even know the facts of it. I mean, it's mainly because I absolutely hate litigating in Northern Ireland. It becomes personal here. I do everything in my power. And just even what you have said, you know, summarise that. So I, if I'm a threat, uh, I'm, I'm surprising myself because, as I say, I very, very rarely am engaging. I'm engaging in Dublin. I don't have these criticisms. I engage in London. I, you know, I fight case at the moment. I've just literally, before I came in here, we're fighting in Luxembourg. Uh, you know, a media company who's basically told me where to go. And it's been thing. I've had people have threats at me personally. I get from when I'm trying to stop trolls attacking journalists. Now, am I supposed to just be selective in who I send my letters out to, or what? I'm an officer of the court. Everyone has a right. Even if you're talking, you're citing Ian Paisley, an example. And I don't want to go into particular cases because there is on, there's an ongoing litigation scenario in background, not in relation to the, the Telegraph. But we went as far as issue, and I, you know, he was very, very upset about this for different reasons. Now there was a finding, and we can't we can't argue against the facts. But it's just not as black and white as that. I did not come in here and just fire something out there in the belief that I've got some sort of guy who's a, a crook or something to do it. It was not that. We, there are many, many factors to be taken into account. And if I'm acting for a journalist, or if I'm defending for a newspaper. I do it the same way, like I make assessment, but what I do do as well, Sam, and I think it's very important for you to just to consider in mind, most of the cases that have gone to the court over the last four decades that I've been involved in have all been cases that could have been settled. They could have been settled either by, as a result of a clarification or policy, but either the newspaper decided not to do it, or in the case of an individual, a very famous case, it was the, the client wanted a donation to the Royal Victoria Hospital Intensive Care Unit, and he was laughed at. Now, you cannot take it out, but if this is in the context of we need legislative reform to protect the scientific research, I've never come across that in my career, so I don't know, but you, you are saying, and to be fair to you, I can understand what you're saying and why you're saying it. And you are on the front line, on the receiving end, if you like, you know, whether it's from me or from any other lawyers. And I totally respect your position. You're a courageous investigative journalist who should be protected at all costs, but you shouldn't be protected to a point where you feel absolutely invulnerable and you can do what they're doing on Facebook and publish anything. Absolutely. And, and I'm and sure you'll agree to that. We're in agreement on that, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, look, I've been, I've, there's, there's, a, there's, there's a chap who actually doesn't do this under a pseudonym, he does it under his own name, um, who regularly um, sends me uh, very defamatory content online. He, uh, he, he says on Twitter that I take backhanders for writing stories, all sorts of ludicrous stuff. I just ignore that. That's, that's my approach to it. But I think that there, there is a very significant difference here. This is, this is not about you as a journalist. You're a high-profile journalist in a pretty small jurisdiction. It's natural that a lot of this goes through you. And um, This is about the law. It could be you. It could be any other journalist. That doesn't really matter. Um, it's about the law. Is there a good argument not to protect public interest journalism, honest scientific endeavour in law. I don't see any good argument for that. I don't argue against you, Nat. I don't argue against you, Nat. We know that what you've just said there, I would be totally 100% behind you. So let's well, but, but yeah, no, well, that's, that's fine. I, 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 have no, I, I have never objected to that. My only point of objection has been that I am a strong believer in the jury. I trust I, I, the judge. I share some of your views on that. And yes. We all should be judged by that, me included. Yep. You know, by, by, by a jury. And as I say, I feel very strongly about that. I do believe that there, there may be, it's not necessarily in Belfast because we haven't had the excessive rewards perhaps, but in Dublin, I have been speaking out that there needs to be some form of threshold or cap put in place there. 
what you've just said, we're, we're well known. Like, I, I've, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Andrew Scott's report, I mean, Andrew, as a friend of mine, I know him very well. We disagreed intensely because he had one, one particular view and then it changed. Literally within days of his report coming out, it was the exact opposite of what we had discussed, and I must say I'm bewildered by that. I told him I was, but he's entitled to have his view, he's entitled to get his point out there. I just didn't agree with it, but that doesn't mean I don't agree with the points you've made. So the question comes down to really, you know, whether or not legislative reform is, is warranted, you know, to address these issues. And if, if there is an issue that, you know, that the, the investigative journalism is, is not being given its, its, its proper remit here in Northern Ireland, that needs to be addressed and it needs to be a balanced approach. Let me ask you, Peter, do you think that the Defamation Act uh, would address the issues here that we have in Northern Ireland? Um, well, to be frank, I'm not sure that the 2013 Act as a statute even did the job that it was intended to do in England. And if you're going to overlay statutory reform on top of sort of hundreds of years of common law uh, principles, um, it's quite a difficult act. Well, um, in terms of, you know, raising that threshold on, you know, serious harm and that you have to prove, you know, that there has been serious harm, that's effective. Is it not in addressing some of well, these issues? I, and I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it goes to the issue that's part of the question, which is, um, would, would that aspect of the 2013 Act protect um, investigative journalism more? Um, I mean, possibly on the basis that it would exclude some m moderate harm cases. Um, but I think a lot of that boils down to where you see the balance between reputational rights and freedom of expression. And if you view reputational rights, as the courts do now, as part of your privacy right or part of your um, human right, then you're balancing two competing rights. And so you're probably going to have a, a, a spectrum of debate ranging from journalists who would be leaning more towards Article 10 rights to privacy advocates that lean more towards reputational and privacy rights. I mean, <laughs> the difficulty as I see it is that um, if you take, I'm sure Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you take the south of Ireland, the north of Ireland and England, you now have three different standards of test as to what level of harm is required before the tort is even actionable. So the, the difficulty with that is that it doesn't, I mean, it may encourage people to sue more in Ireland if they can, um, than in England, but it doesn't maybe get around the, the overall problem that seems to be being posed, which is, would it protect investigative journalists more? Um, I mean, I, I think the difficulty looking at the way, is, when, you, when you superimpose new statutory provisions on top, you then have a whole flurry of further cases and expenses arguing about what it means, which is an example in the Le Show case that we discussed this week. So. Um, I mean, looking at that case, it seems to them, on one view, provide an additional hurdle for a plaintiff or claimant to get over, which is, as a matter of fact, what level of harm was caused to your reputation, which would, in a sense, put off people from suing newspapers and others if they weren't sure that they could meet that threshold. But it's still not a very clear threshold. Um, I suppose the answer put back to you is that if you were, depending on where you lie on terms of the right, um, is, it, is it necessarily correct to take out from being actionable at all, whether in the county court or some lower level, <coughs> cases that involve defamation or libel involving moderate harm? And what does that mean? So 
That's the difficulty. I'm not sure I quite agree that the proposition is that the 2013 Act did more to protect investigative journalists, per se. I mean, to my mind, that was already protected by qualified privilege as a defence, and Article 10 had already been built into that defence. So, Well, I want to talk about qualified privilege yeah. later, maybe, but my understanding is that that's an, it's a non-exhaustive list and that, that's an issue, you know. But, I mean, so, as you say, it's really a balance of, of where you, what, which rights, you, rights of reputation, be it in, within privacy or, or, or rights of uh, freedom of expression. I want to just bring... Uh, Olivia Keenan, just to bring another uh, context to this in, in Northern Ireland issue. I mean, Olivia, if you can hear me, um, it's not just politicians in Northern Ireland, is it, who are using the, the, the legal framework that we have and the rather chilling effect that some might say that it's having on free speech. Uh, it, it's, it's also uh, organised criminal networks who are able to use those laws in order to repress stories, which you know, must be of public interest in revealing the kind of nefarious activities that they're up to. Is that correct? Thanks, Mark. Um, yeah, I mean, look, this this is obviously a very um, multifactorial um, uh, approach to the discussion that we're we're having. Um, I act on behalf of media organisations and journalists, um, as well as uh, you know, independent film production companies and so on. And what I can say is that. When a libel threat is issued, it is taken extremely serious because it has huge consequences, not just for the individual journalist who penned the story, but obviously for the organisation as well. So I think, you know, it is correct what Paul has said and, and, and what Peter is saying as well. Um, and obviously, you know, Sam has articulated where the issue lies in relation to investigative journalism. And I would say that, you know, the 2013 Act albeit what Peter said in terms of it can create satellite litigation in order to determine the actual meaning of what Parliament prescribed, which nobody wants. We don't need to, to have any more um, uh, uh, legal costs in terms of um, then deciding what the statute means. But I think overarching from a general perspective, the 2013 Act um, can only be um, considered to have been a benefit for investigative journalism. I know there are these discussions about um, the threshold of serious harm, but the threshold of serious harm is a very good starting point in terms of when a legal complaint will and will not be made. Um, and so it does put in a safeguard, if you like, to make sure that um, complaints are not simply um, distributed um, when they should not be. Um, and also the, the requirement for financial loss for corporate entities who um, wish to complain and libel. Um, and also the fact that the public interest defence that um, media organisations and journalists rely upon is now codified in the 2013 Act. So there is now a statutory public interest test. And whilst, yes, there is a um, voluminous and uh, extremely helpful body of common law principles, which Peter alluded to there over many, many years, which does exist in Northern Ireland in terms of a public interest defence, but it cannot be said that a statutory framework which provides uh, transparency, consistency and um, a framework to look to um, which codifies that public interest defence cannot be anything but of benefit. I mean, ultimately, public interest reporting 
is, uh, you'd mentioned uh, democracy, Mark. Well, public interest reporting is the lifeblood of a democratic society. Free speech is uh, a fundamental right that all of us have. Uh, so in the way that Paul quite rightly provides uh, legal advice and assistance um, to assert uh, when an individual wishes to complain, in the same way, um, it is also equally important to ensure that uh, those who are exercising their free sp speech rights also have those protections and safeguards. Um, indeed, the traditional media are the guardian and the public watchdog of society. And uh, where Sam discussed about um, very important public interest investigations, well, when an investigation is being conducted by experienced journalists such as Sam, uh, and there is an impending public interest report, which has not yet been broadcast or published, uh, and if there is a libel threat, well, that can and often does quell the uh, public's right to know and find out about something which is of ma a matter of huge public interest. And so um, there is a chilling effect that does have to be addressed. Um, I think that the 2013 Act has gone some way. I don't think it is the panacea. I agree with Peter that there are uh, a balance that has to be achieved. Um, I think that Sam raised an important issue that um, in addition to um, mainstream journalism, there are defensible uh, uh, statutory defences in terms of scientific and academic publications, which is extremely important as well. Um, just going back to, to an issue that uh, Paul raised in regard to the social media organisations, and, and certainly this is something which uh, is only um, going to be addressed more and more and is certainly the future in terms of the libel privacy uh, debate given that most of our lives are predominantly online and that is something that we shall as lawyers and as citizens have to look to. Um, but in terms of the, the Defamation Act, well section five of it requires complainants to first complain to those who actually publish the content online. So what that means is that where you and I have a social media platform uh, and we publish something ourselves, rather than simply just going to the platform itself, uh, a complainant should in the first instance, where reasonable and where it's possible to do so, they should contact the person who is publishing that user-generated content. And that is what the Defamation Act brings. So yes, I agree with Paul that it again does not go the whole way, but it certainly goes uh, to, to it's, it's a starting point. Um, just in relation to the jury's point, um, I just want to make sure that I'm covering all the points that we've heard in the discussion to date. In regard to juries, uh, Paul has a point. I mean, ultimately, you know, historically, um, libel trials, personal injury trials that Paul talked about, uh, criminal trials, the whole purpose of a jury is that you are judged by your peers. Everybody in the law is equal. Everybody in law is equal and therefore should be accountable equally. And with that in mind, your peers should be able to uphold um, the societal standard as it applies at that time you are being judged. And so uh, there is some argument in, in regard to the benefit that uh, juries can bring. But clearly there are also problems and, and that was the, the discussion about the capping of jury awards. And certainly here what we have is a, a, a procedural safeguard whereby the Court of Appeal can review a uh, jury award and where it is so absurd they can certainly overturn that jury award. But the other issue to remember about jury awards is that 
Well, a jury trial is extremely costly. A libel trial of itself is is extremely costly. Um, so so the jury the jury aspect can make that much more expensive, and therefore, uh, you know, the serious harm threshold can cut uh, a case off at the knees at the start before you get into that expensive litigation if it has no, um, you know, uh, a basis whereby there is no real harm to the reputation of, of the complainant and therefore the case shouldn't proceed. Um, so, so I think that that really is, is some of the things that we've discussed. But in regards to who is um, taking complaints and, and, and specifically in regard to Mark, your, your question regarding um, serious uh, public interest investigations. Yes, indeed, libel laws are exercised by everybody. Um, Paul will know that. Uh, they are exercised from the, um, you know, the, 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 you know, Joe Smith, who nobody knows, um, to, to the Johnny Depps. Uh, and also that means that it is also exercised by those who have got criminal convictions or those who are suspected of serious criminality. And so um, given that anybody has a right in law to exercise exercise um, their right to, to a good reputation, um, they will always um, have that right to complain. But I think here the issue really is, is the misuse of that right, where um, the, the serious public investigations by the media organisations are being, uh, there's a huge chilling effect on them at such an early stage. Unfortunately, we're living in a world where all of the advertising revenue that uh, media organisations would have traditionally relied upon to assist in the funding of these very expensive but very important public interest investigations, that advertising revenue is now shifted to online uh, platforms and, and therefore they don't have the money to defend these libel actions, so therefore that would stop a lot of investigations. I mentioned the, the example of, you know, maybe criminalised gangs using this as, as just to flag that, that you know, that that matters of public debate that are clearly of public interest are not getting publication maybe because of this. And, and that touches on the, the other point that you made about democracy. And I wanted to bring Jessica in on that. And because, Jessica, you're part of an organisation which is looking at this in a wider context of vexatious litigation and what are called slaps in, in, in Europe and, and comparing and contrasting different jurisdictions in relation to that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and how Northern, Northern Ireland figures within that kind of outlook? Um, yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, over the past number of months, Index and Censorship has been speaking to journalists from across Europe, so 29 countries in total, so that includes Northern Ireland, about um, their experience of vexatious lawsuits. And, and it's worth saying that, of course, there is different types of vexatious lawsuits. So some might be taken opportunistically in the hopes of getting money out of a media organisation or a journalist, and others are just used to intimidate and silence the media. Um, so it's some in that latter type will fall into the category of what we call SLAP, so Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. And so Index has been focusing specifically on these SLAP lawsuits. Um, and as I said, these are a type of vexatious lawsuits, but they're most often taken by powerful or wealthy people or, or companies against individuals who are speaking out in the public interest. So journalists are common targets and our research is focusing on journalists, but activists, academics and NGOs can also be affected. And, and these, this type of vexatious lawsuit is not brought for financial gain. They're brought 
um, exclusively to intimidate their targets into silence. So that means that even when the information is completely accurate and in the public interest, there is a risk that it might not be published or that it might be removed if it is already being published. I mean, Northern Ireland is not like, you know, somewhere like Malta, for example, you know, it, I mean, it's it, things aren't that bad here and surely your organization is not looking at Northern Ireland in that similar kind of context when it's talking about vexatious litigation. Well when you say I, I suppose something that that is was on I suppose at the forefront of our minds as media freedom organizations with regard to Northern Ireland is that um, I mean you say it's not like Malta but I, I think actually one of the reasons why for media freedom organizations maybe the 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 libel law has become has played maybe second second fiddle is because of the other threats that journalists in Northern Ireland face. Um, so, for instance, uh, so far this year, there's been twelve media freedom alerts that have been filed in relation to the UK on the Council of Europe platform for um, for the protection of journalism and safety of journalists. And of those four relate to media freedom violations in Northern Ireland, and all of those alerts were triggered by threats and intimidation of journalists. Um, and this, of course, uh, this kind of intimidation has exactly the same aim as a slap, and that is to silence the journalist and to stop their investigation. Um, like obviously at the time of, well, not obviously, but at the time of her death in, in October 2017, the Maltese journalist um, Daphne Corana Galizia, um, who had and was in the process of revealing information that was inconvenient to several um, high-flying business people and politicians. She was facing 47 lawsuits. Um, so months before her death in early 2017, one businessman filed 19 defamation lawsuits against her in one go. So no, we're not seeing that extent and, you know, that kind of um, extent of, uh, of intimidation using the libel laws in Northern Ireland. But, you know, it's not to say that there isn't the 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 threats that journalists are facing are are you know they're still definitely present and they are impacting the the uh, provision of information um, that is being provided to the public and then also obviously democracy as well as been mentioned several times is is also at risk here. It's two different things, isn't it? Because you know, I, I mean, threats and what. Paul mentioned that being within the law and an officer of the law, you know, the fact is that we we have, and it's a complex, I mean, that's what we've discovered, this is a complex, there's no simple answer, it's a balance of, of a fine balance between rights of reputation uh, uh, and rights of freedom of expression, and this is the legal system that we have here, I mean, when you talk about those kind of threats, you're talking, and, and what happened to journalists in Malta, for example, that's outside the law, and that's very different in that sense that it's, it's threats of physical violence, it's not threats of, of being subject to litigation. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, absolutely, I, d I don't think anyone would say that journalists are beyond reproach. Um, obviously, individuals who genuinely believe that their rights have been violated should absolutely be entitled to bring a case and defend their rights. And, and as you say, we need to balance the right to a good name and to privacy with the right to freedom of expression. But, um, you know, that has to be needs to be well thought out um, and, and needs to be any um, allowance for in the law for defamation law or any other law to be abused um, for that matter needs to be needs to be shut off. So um, like. Um, for instance, obviously, we talked a lot about the 2013 reform um, in England and Wales already, and, and several um, people have said about how the, the that has made the situation better in England and Wales. 
but but still i mean london is is still a prime destination for forum shopping which is um you know that that's when plaintiffs pick jurisdictions that are most likely to serve their interests um and journalists in other countries so speaking to journalists and in, in elsewhere in europe um really do not want to run the risk of of needing to defend their stories in a london court because of the expense that's involved there is just eye-watering so so what happens instead is they just take down their stories um well let me um, let me ask that to paul tweet forum shopping is a is a real thing paul is it not if if a, if a claimant can think that they're going to succeed in dublin and there's some kind of publication in Dublin, why not bring it there, yeah. for example? Well, first of all, like I don't fully understand just what Jessica's saying. I mean, there's a big difference between journalists being threatened, which is absolutely appalling, and also journalists, you know, <coughs> being put in a position where they are, you know, they live in fear and that restricts what they publish. As I said earlier, I act for many, many journalists, and the serious problem that all my clients are facing are from trolls. Trolls who threaten them because they don't like what they've written. Uh, trolls who just literally are sitting in an attic somewhere and you know have decided that there's some article in some journalist that they feel uh, is, is somehow offended them, and it's an appalling problem. Uh, I haven't come across these threats of physical violence, and again, Sam would be in a much better position to to comment on that. But. In terms of like, what, what we are talking about here, about forum shopping, I mean, we keep talking, it's moved from libel tourism, libel tourism to forum shopping. I mean, the big problem we've got at the moment is tax tourism. Tax tourism, we've got Facebook, Twitter, Google, shopping around to get the, the cheapest and most tax-effective jurisdiction. And then they, they're now complaining that they're being sued in Dublin. So my clients, from wherever, we, we have to go after Facebook and Twitter and Google. That's where they're based. That's where they've sought sanctuary. That's where they did keep their data until they decided to shift it out to the safe haven in the United States or try to do that in recent times. Those are the real problems we are facing on a daily basis. The situation about the journalist in Malta was appalling, absolutely disgraceful, but that was in a situation of the most heinous and serious criminal situation. It's not relevant to what we're debating here today, in my opinion. So I, I want to come back to the, again to the social media thing, but I, I want to ask first a question to you, Sam, because it was brought up before. I'm not sure Peter or Paul, but uh, this idea that the common law, you have the common law in Northern Ireland, you have the Reynolds defence, you have this qualified privilege for responsible journalism. Is that not enough? Um, it's certainly true that qualified privilege is of enormous benefit, particularly to me as a, as a political journalist, to what's said in the Assembly yesterday. I can report it with complete confidence today. I did it today about somebody um, where I was thinking, hang on a minute, that had been said outside the chamber. I'm not sure I would have said that. Said in the chamber, I can report it as qualified privilege, and it's very straightforward. The same with courts, the same with various other forums, such as giving a press conference. However, there are lots of areas that that does not cover, um, particularly when it comes to in-depth investigative um, journalism. And so therefore, with something um, like an investigative into an MP where there are allegations of corruption or something of that nature, very often that, that is not much comfort. Um, there's, there's Reynolds, which is, which is helpful, very helpful, um, but it's simplified, I think it's fair to say, in the, in the 2013 Act. I mean, Reynolds was never an exhaustive list. It's, it's very helpful. Um, it's very often at the back of my mind when I'm um, pursuing reasonable journalism, where you're giving somebody a chance to respond, where you're not acting in an in a, uh, unreasonable way. Um, but there, there is a very significant difficulty. And just speaking from personal experience, 
I can't really, um, for reasons of my contract, I'm not really allowed to talk about cases that have involved the newsletter, but um, I can talk freely about a case that involved me with the book, um, where I was threatened um, by, I think from memory, 10, I should have checked this, but I think it was 10 members of the DUP. Paul wasn't the lawyer there, I can say, um, and uh, they, I, I simply sent them questions as a reasonable journalist. I gave them, I think, a month to answer those questions. I wasn't springing this on them at the last minute. They were reasonable questions. They were in the public interest. They were about a matter of incredible public importance, about the RHI scandal, about their various roles in that, some incredibly limited, some absolutely central. And just by asking the questions, I got a threat um, that they, they may come after me, they may come, they may come after my publisher. The book hadn't even been published, they hadn't even seen what was in it. Rather than come back with a reasoned response, even if it's just a no comment, we don't want to engage with you, um, and let us publish the book, and then um, come after us and say you've libeled us. Now, I think the lie was given to the, the belief, if there was any belief, that um, they had been defamed in any way by my questions, and um, by the fact that the book has been out for over a year, there hasn't been a comma of the book that has been challenged. Is that something that is in the public interest? Do people feel able to do that under the current law? I don't think so. It's an abuse of the law, um, but the law as it currently exists gives comfort to those people who abuse it that way. Peter? I, I just, I find, I find a bit of the debate slightly confusing in the sense that, um, yes, well, a responsible journalist, whether it's under the 2013 Act or Reynolds, will give a right of reply, for example. Um, if someone receives that and can intuit from that that there may be, some, may be something libelous about to be said by them and they don't think it's true, then they may well write a letter saying it's not true, etc. But the common law rule in Bonnard and Perryman, which prevents prior restraint in the case of libel, applies. It's got nothing to do with the 2013 Act. And um, it provides a comfort to journalists. I find all of this sort of reference to, I mean, a bit like Paul, I've acted for both sides, so I can see both sides, but the mere fact that someone will send you a letter of claim doesn't seem to me to, as often by itself, restrain freedom of expression. If, if you as an investigative journalist have followed good journalistic practice and provided a right of reply and gone to sources of mixed variety and not all with an ax to grind, even if your story isn't true, and after trial is proven to be false, you still have a defence. And so, I mean, I have no particular difficulty with the codification of a public interest defence, although I don't see a marked difference between it and Reynolds' privilege, but that's fine. But we seem to be sort of conf conflating these sort of, you know, slap warning letters and um, that are assumed to all be completely baseless. I mean, there must be some instances where someone is provided with a right of reply, they exercise their right of reply and say, well, by the way, your question infers that you're going to say X about me. That's false. And if you publish that, I will sue you for defamation. I mean, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with that. Is, there, is that a way of, of settling it before, where both sides can talk to each other before something gets published, you know, which does maybe damage somebody's reputation, which is false? Is that a practical solution? So if I had gone to politician X and said, I'm going to say you're a paedophile, that might be a reasonable response if it was completely scurrilous. Um, one of the people to whom I went was Mervyn Storey. He was a DUP minister. And um, what I put to him was not remotely defamatory. I said, I've been told that on this date, you spoke to somebody and you told them that you were aware that RHI was in trouble. Is that defamatory? Of course it's not defamatory. And the instant knee-jerk response is, I'll see you in court. Now, 
it's all very well saying that if you got to court, if you had the funds to defend that in court to trial with a jury, perhaps hundreds of thousands of pounds involved, depending on which way it went, that you would ultimately win. My house was on the line. I'm a journalist. I don't have the newspaper behind me. This is a book. I indemnify the publisher. This is my life on the line. So either I decide we publish and be damned, which we did, or I say, you know what, this isn't worth it. I've got two kids, I've got a wife. Um, why should I be worrying about this? Um, is that a reasonable um, protection of free speech in this society? No, it's not. It's not about whether cases go to court. It's about the chilling effect um, of what might happen in terms of the costs before you ever even get to court. Okay. Uh, if I could just very, very briefly just reply to that, and as I say, I take on board all the points you've made, Sam, but I should also say, like, if, if I put on my plaintiff hat here, I get threats all the time, and I think the same way as you do. Is this worth it to me? I've been doing this 40 years. I've got a family I've got to think of as well. Is it worth me going after these people for all the threats I've got? I've got three cases at the moment, and, if, and I say, my wife's saying to me, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this at your stage? I do it exactly the same reason you do it, on a point of principle, and I take a chance. But there may be cases going forward where I decide, no, it's just not worth it. And you make that, that decision. You have displayed uh, you know, an enormous knowledge of, of defamation, which I suspect you, you know probably more than me and most of us here. That's because you've got, definitely not true. To, you know a fair bit. But you, know, you make that informed decision. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's an ideal position, and I most certainly do not condone somebody doing, you know, trying to, to scare you off or whatever you want to put it. I would suspect they obviously don't know you very well. I don't think you would scare off too easily from my experience. But nonetheless, what we've got to do is we're talking in generalisations about can we bring the 2013 Act into Northern Ireland? What I would like to see is either Northern Ireland having its own specific uh, reforms, dealing with specific issues that are of specific concern to the journalists and the print media and the, and the broadcasting and, media and here, what, what would or, that... or, or, or at wholesale reform of the 2013 Act in England, which in my opinion is not fit for purpose and never was fit for purpose. Um, and, and then let's get it so we deal with the online stuff, we protect investigative journalists, protect scientific research, all these things. I mean, like I say, it's not... I can't comment on it because I've never come across them as a problem. But if it is a problem, it should be dealt with. Deal with it specifically. And how would you protect investigative journalism, you know, in a legislative framework? Journalists need protected. The first, the biggest single problem that they have, in my experience, is at least trolls that are out attacking them. And they are on the receiving end. And That's this is term. The second bit, the second bit is if they are getting letters that they regard as totally unfounded, intimidatory, <coughs> with absolutely no basis whatsoever, I would go to the law society. A lawyer, a lawyer should not send out a letter he does not believe in. And I mean, that's, 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 that's the other remedy you've got on it. Like, it's not, I, I, again, it, I cannot speak to, um, I cannot say, it's very easy for me to say, and I remember I was savaged at a conference once where I can't remember, it was one of the uh, leading broadcasters, one of the, the news thing, because I said that look, this doesn't happen. I don't know, you're saying it does happen, and I've no doubt at all that, that, that that's the case. But you've got to balance that out. The, the media, whether it's a broadcast or print media in the UK and Ireland, is among the most respectable and credible in the world, simply because there are defamation laws, simply because there's a press ombudsman, simply because there's an Ofcom regulator. There's something there. In America, you can't, I mean, that's the only probably thing I would agree with Donald Trump. You can't believe like 90% what you read in the media because Fox are pro-Republican, CNN pro-Democrat, whatever like this here. But people know that out there. They know whenever they listen to something. But Trump is somebody who wanted stricter libel yeah, laws. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, it's so, so he said. But you know what I mean? Here, people, when they read a newspaper, whether it's a newsletter, whether it's a Telegraph, the Times, or whatever, they expect it to be true 
They trust our journalists. They trust what they're reading. And that is in no small measure due to the libel laws, the privacy laws, the data protection laws, and the other checks and balances we've got in place. I now, there has to be a balance between that and protecting courageous investigative journalists. And, but, but that should be done specifically, not in some general willy-nilly way of you know, trying to protect free speech. Totally I see, I see that speech. Jessica has her hand up, and I'll come to you in a second, Jessica. I just wanted to give Peter an opportunity Sorry, to speak. No, it was just this point about um, sort of vexatious or spurious, or I think there's been various different ways of describing them, Talk, talking in the abstract, or, or perhaps an example was given. Um, I mean, I, again, I have some difficulty with that. I mean, unless, unless you're going to simply erode or get rid of any reputational claim at all, um, if you write a letter as a journalist or go doing your job, which you've chosen to do and so forth, you're, you're necessarily opening yourself up, especially if you're dealing with people that are involved in organised crime or dodgy dealings, you're opening yourself up to that kind of a response, which is, in a sense, on one view, given the Maltese examples, you know, not the least of your worries, but, I mean, it, you know, so unless, unless you get, as I say, in effect, get, get rid of the law of defamation, you're always going to have some aspect of someone writing you a letter saying, well, I'm going to sue you. I mean... Mm. I just don't follow the logic of because people send letters saying I'm going to sue you that this has this massive chilling effect. I just don't understand that. But okay, let me, uh, Jessica, you wanted to make a point. Go ahead. Um, yeah, sorry, no. I just thought it was worth mentioning um, in terms of investigative journalists and in terms of the protections as well. Um, first of all, there was a recent sur survey done. Um, uh, um, specifically targeting journalists who were um, looking at financial crime and corruption. And it was found that 71% of those journalists had experienced threats or harassment while working on investigations. So this isn't just something that's, you know, uh, relevant to, to, to investigative journalists in Northern Ireland. 71% is massive, obviously. And in terms of the protections, um, something that we're involved in, Index on Censorship, uh, as a coalition of organisations, is pushing for protections in the form of an anti-slap directive. And that's something that's being considered at the moment by the, by the European Union, for instance. Um, and obviously, if it was enacted, it wouldn't be immediately beneficial to journalists in Northern Ireland, um, if Northern Ireland is outside the EU at that stage. But it should have an impact nonetheless. Um, and that, that kind of legislation is already in force in states in Canada, Australia and the US, among other jurisdictions. And it's essentially aimed at um, s preventing these kinds of lawsuits from, from um, racking up significant costs and also to stop um, time from being wasted, essentially. So I think those are two points that are just worth mentioning in this as well. I, I wanted to uh, speak about uh, the overlap here with privacy. I mean, it, it seems that the privacy and defamation are becoming increasingly hard to distinguish in some ways. Does, I mean, if there is an emergent protection under privacy and reputations included under Article 8, as you know, as, as a, uh, fallen within that right, is there a means that we can rely on greater privacy laws in, in, in order to protect what we're trying to protect here? Uh, and that's maybe where defamation should become more limited in that sense, if, if privacy can be grown and if that can be done through data protection, for example, is that a feasible option? Yeah, well, that, that's happening now. Anyway, Marcus, you know, I mean, in, in many ways, data has really got absorbed with privacy. You know, for instance, if we are taking action about a paparazzi photograph of a child, which is still a problem, you know, we would go down the data route 
the breach of misuse of a child's data rather than privacy. There is no so privacy. better chances with that? Yeah, is it? much better. Uh, and, uh, the, uh, and the, but the problem is that there's no privacy law as such, and it's such a, a, a broad basis, very, very difficult to fight. And that is an area where only the wealthy, again, can take on either the media or these people, you know, online or whatever, because it is expensive litigation, full of risk, uh, but uh, you know, and but but fortunately, and I say we are acting for a U.S. campaigner at the moment, trying to protect children from paparazzi, you know, poking out from behind photographs and stuff, or from behind curtains or whatever. And uh, you know, there is a landmark case coming up uh, on it. But again, we're emphasising it's a data element uh, because that seems to be the only thing that we can get a clean uh, run at from a legal perspective. Privacy, you know, the problem is, is it a public street? Is there a right to privacy in a public street? You know, is it right? You know, if you're within a lens of a, a you know, it's one of these uh, high-tech cameras that can photograph, you know, 200 metres away, where does it stop? You know, people are photographed in boats. The only place that really worries them is uh, St. Bart's because uh, it's under French law and it's a criminal offence uh, to take uh, photographs and breach somebody's privacy. And for some odd reason... Everyone's heading to St. Bart's now for their holidays, so uh, that's the only thing I can recommend. Uh, go ahead, Peter. Well, it, I mean, the, the, the privacy, the, the first thing I think with privacy and data protection claims, to an extent copyright, when, when you add them on top of um, a libel claim or instead of, is that you enter another world of incredible complexity in terms of trying to take your case from start to finish. And there's all sorts of different burdens of proof and different tests. And, and so it becomes a complete minefield. And that's part of, the, part of the history of privacy, a bit like libel, is that it's a rich man or woman's sport. So all of the privacy main cases, whether it's Naomi Campbell or J.K. Rowling, you, you know, you're noticing that it's, it's a, a well-to-do or well-off claimant bringing a claim usually against a media organisation. So, I mean, whether you're talking about defamation or privacy or data, really there's an access to justice issue across the board. I think that's yeah. worthwhile um, noting. I mean, it will, I think your question, I might be wrong, was, was, was in somewhat at the question of whether privacy could subsume libel law to, to an extent, greater or lesser degree. Um, well, if, if, if it's a balancing out, you know, if defamation is, as you say, becoming, you know, more limited, um, if, if the, you know, an emerging right to privacy is a way of addressing that, um, and because there it doesn't matter if the information is true, you know, you can, you still have a right of a claim but, there. If but, it's an intrusion upon something, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, and it also addresses the issue of public interest, because you have not, no expectation, reasonable expectation of privacy you know, if you're a politician and you're engaged in some kind of activity that is of public interest and that investigative journalists should well, be talking about, for example. I, 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 look, I mean, you could have an endless debate about this, but I'm not sure that I perceive a huge difference between the balancing exercise in a defamation case where there's a, say, qualified privilege defence and the inbuilt balancing exercise in a privacy suit, albeit that you get rid of the, the naughty issue as to whether it's true or false, it, that not being a relevant inquiry. So, um, I mean, I suppose from a press point of view, to date, although cases like, like Cliff Richard and so forth have expanded the, 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 the extent of damages that can be claimed, I mean, from, from, a, 
from a media point of view, um, they might say, well, privacy is a better better for us than defamation because it's not as expensive. I mean, the difficulty, though, is that unlike defamation suits, you can have prior restraint at a privacy claim. So, you know, they're not exactly the same. And, and the, diff the difficulty is that the same factual circumstance can give, give rise to claims across all of those torts and harassment, depending on the regularity of it. So um, I don't think it, it's really a great thing for the courts or for people wanting to access the courts to have so many different torts, often which aren't a perfect fit to claims against the likes of Facebook or Google. Um, and trying to pick which torts best or argue all three or four of them, it's yeah. not ideal. I want to leave some time to talk about Facebook and Google, but I'll give Olivia a chance. I see, Olivia, your hand's up. Do you want to speak? Uh, yeah, just uh, quickly, in terms of the law of privacy, I mean, it's evolving at a very rapid pace, and certainly um, it, in my experience, I mean, I represent uh, traditional media organisations as well as platforms, but the vast majority of legal actions in the last, you know, three to four years have been privacy actions. Um, and, and I would disagree with Peter respectfully that actually privacy um, as, a, as a form of litigation is a much easier and um, a more open door in terms of access to justice. For instance, libel is self-funding, um, privacy actions, uh, complainants can avail of legal aid, and often uh, I've been involved in numerous cases defending the media in respect of nuisance privacy actions, which whilst ultimately um, the media organisations have successfully defended them um, or successfully had those actions withdrawn, they have had to do so at their own cost because the complainants um, are essentially what Jessica describes as slap actions. Um, and also, um, they are extremely costly um, pieces of litigation because, as uh, Peter said, they are very complex and it is a moving feast because the law of privacy evolves with um, society more so than, 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 than libel. It'd be a much more uh, a rapid um, evolution. Uh, and so it is a changing feast all the time. You also have two substantive hearings so you have the prior restraint for an interim injunction, and that can be often a very contentious and costly hearing. But then you have the substantive trial as well. Um, and, and so it is extremely costly. But what I would say is, um, yes, Cliff Richard has dramatically changed the landscape in terms of privacy and by doing so has also um, made it extremely serious when um, an organisation is faced with a privacy complaint because the financial consequences are now phenomenal. Um, and also uh, the Data Protection Act of 2018, which has um, essentially could, uh, brought into domestic law the GDPR, um, this data protection is now an additional supplementary right and we are seeing more and more data protection actions and now, following the decision in July of this year, the Court of European, uh, the Court of Justice of the European Union struck down the EU to US Privacy Shield. But what is really important about that decision is that now that we have Brexit, uh, and as of the first of January twenty twenty one, the UK um, will be. Um, completely out of the EU and therefore the striking down of the privacy shield between the EU and the US has exactly the same implication for the UK. So any data, any European Union 
citizens' data who uh, is being in any way processed or transferred or um, dealt with in the UK, uh, including Northern Ireland, um, will have uh, extremely high hurdles um, to ensure that the transfer of EU citizens' data in Northern Ireland are compliant fully compliant with European laws um, or uh, it will require a serious overhaul of how that data is uh, is 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 being processed and 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 used um, so that there will be uh, other uh, safeguards and measures that will have to be conducted such as transfer impact assessments uh, and and data protection impact assessments and so uh, my view is that privacy and data protection laws um, are with us and there uh, is going to be a substantially um, a lot more complaints um, in this area of the law and it's very very complex so I just wanted to, yeah, add, that to add that point and I, I think that's something that's going to change the field of play dramatically um, I just wanted to speak about because uh, we've touched on it um, uh, but it, it is important Facebook Twitter Google this, I mean, the advent of these social media giants and, and the power that they have has changed things immensely, hasn't it, Paul? Absolutely. I mean, believe it or not, uh, we're still getting like uh, word processor letters in, basically uh, saying that, uh, you know, we're just a platform, we're not a publisher, even though uh, they've actually gone so far as to set up, Facebook have gone so far as to set up their own oversight board, which they've carefully selected the 20 members on. Um, they're also uh, relying on the e-commerce directive, which again was brought into force long before they became, you know, the, the power, the overriding power that they are. And it was never, in my opinion, intended to deal with uh, the likes of Facebook and Twitter and Google and the power they've got. I mean, I use a comparison between George Orwell's 1984, where, you know, everyone was really worried about the threat of Big Brother. 2024 is going to be a much, much greater challenge. I mean, at my t in the next three or four years, we're going to see a scenario where the social media and search engine giants are going to be uncontrollable. It's going to be way, way beyond the pale anything we can do. So, like, the law can't keep up at the moment. It's not even on the pitch. But their argument is they're just mere conduits, they're, you know? They're the they're platforms. They say they're they're platform. not the, yeah. the ones that but are... If you, but, you know, the comparison with, if, if for instance, um, uh, the newsletter published a letter uh, from uh, a reader and it was defamatory, the newsletter is, is prima facie responsible for the content of that letter. So why should the newsletter be treated any different than Facebook, who are publishing a post from somebody, and they can deal with these posts. They say they can't, they can deal with them. Uh, and then they can walk away. So they're not, they're not controlled. There's no way that they deem they're controlled. And Twitter, and this is a very smart move they're bringing in, as I say, where uh, tweets are talking about them uh, disappearing after 24 hours, like Snapchat. Right. Um, so that there's going to kill anything in terms of being able to do a follow-up. Their answer is, well, go after the poster. We have acting for a very well, and this is a matter of public record, for Miriam O'Callaghan, uh, a very well-known uh, uh, presenter of primetime, investigative journalist um, in, in Dublin. Now, she was a subject for these fake ads that Facebook were putting up, and they kept appearing, saying she was, you know, uh, advertising face creams and different things, and blah blah blah. And people were being ripped off, money ripped off. And then she was subjected to bots, where people were saying, "Oh, she's lost her job at RTE because she's promoting uh, this defective, these defective products." Facebook, she 
did a lot of this herself. She said, please stop it, take it down, take it down. They said, it's all taken down. She said, I've just been talking to you, it's back up there. Kept going up and up and up and down. We came on board, got stuck into them, and uh, all of a sudden, I mean, there's litigation pending in this case, but all of a sudden, of course, they stopped. Funny that, they were able to stop it. But more importantly, we applied to the court for an order identifying the posters, the people who were responsible for this. Facebook wouldn't give us that information, even though they say we should go after the poster first. We had to get a court order, and it turned out to be 51 people from Estonia who posted it. And so are we meant to go after the people in Estonia, or Facebook just, that's it, you know, we've got that information from a court order, so we're okay. Now, I don't want to say any more, because obviously this is sub judice this case, but this has been reported in the media. But that's what we're up against here. That's just one simple example. So, like, while, as I say, I have every sympathy with Sam McBride's position, absolutely. But you cannot compare to Facebook and Twitter. These people and the money that they've got, you know, if they had a million pound award against them, do you think they would be quaking in their boots? The Hick Zuckerberg would be running it. What they do is, and they won't engage, and this is a problem that I've had with the other, the mainstream media as well, you know, they won't engage and try and get a thing resolved early on. And what they do is instead, and the, the situation in Australia two weeks ago where, where the, the, the government were, were going after them for, for lifting the, the advertising, etc. They then pay for their own advertising and effectively buy off the mainstream media by taking one full page ads. We're so good. After Cambridge Analytica, that was the whole thing. We were really respect and protect your data. And we're sitting here like Charlie's. And we're supposed to accept all that. But I can't get cases in lockdown. I can't get cases into court. We can't get these issues tried. Everything's at, you know, at a stop here at the moment. And gradually, we're going towards 2024. Big brother, tell you, it will be really very, very quaint history by the time we get there. Is, is the problem, Peter, that you know these uh, social media platforms and the likes of Google, they're just too powerful and they're escaping regulation because they're, they're so powerful and they, they are so such you know, giants of the economic uh, system? Um, well, they were very canny whenever they set up. I mean, you had, um, as Paula said, you had these, now um, look, very antiquated laws, a 1998 uh, EU directive on data protection an e-commerce regulation that was not aimed in any way at um, intermediaries such as Facebook. And so what they did was that because they grew with such a rapid speed, um, they framed their, their systems into um, a format that would comply, say, with Californian law, in their view. And they lobbied very hard in places like that to make sure that that was OK. So that's all where a lot of the money was coming in. Where but free speech is... is, is yes, but, but ultimately, um, the, the data protection laws, even as they were, are, are if you like, antithetical to social networks because they generally require consent to the processing of any personal data. So there's all sorts of issues about an individual user's consent, whether that's a child or someone that just can't read the hundreds of pages of terms and conditions no. and have no part in negotiating them or indeed just for an individual posting content about someone else without their consent. So, I mean, I think the difficulty is that with, with social media platforms, there's so many issues across the board that, um, 
you know, it would be difficult to know where to start starting a debate like this. I mean, if one's focusing upon the publication of content, or what might be termed third-party content, I agree with Paul that it doesn't seem to me to be right or fair that they can abdicate all responsibility and then rely on this notice defence that they try to make exceptionally complicated. Um, and if anyone wants to that's listening to the podcast, you know, feel free to rummage about in the notification of complaint section of any of these big sites because it's incredibly complicated. And in fact, the notification system doesn't align with the data protection laws. I mean, the simple question should be, for example, say there's a, a picture of, of me put up by someone else. It's not an offensive picture. It's me, I don't know, standing by, beside a tree in a park. Something. There's nothing offensive about it, but it's got my sensitive data in it or special data. It identifies my race and ethnicity, and I don't want it to be on their network. So if I go to make a complaint, um, you would expect the actual simple question to be, is this an image of you, or is this your personal data? Yes. Do you consent? No. And then it's taken down. Even if you buy into the notification, um, or the requirement of a notification in the first place, that isn't the system that they produce. They produce this sort of wormhole of questions that usually direct you towards something that it doesn't quite match. And then if you litigate about it later, they say, well, why didn't you use our online notification system? If you say, well, we did, then you say, well, look, you said harassment. And it wasn't harassment. Now you're saying it's it's defamation. You say, well, you didn't have a box for def defamation. And you didn't have a box for consent. So it, the, the thing is, these companies have mi millions, if not billions of dollars, and a huge protected interest in hoarding all of this data because they monetize it at the back end. So, you know, as I say, there's so many problems. But in terms of content or or data that's published on the site, there needs to have, have be a serious look at exactly what role they have in, in the publication of that content, whether it's by a user or just the, the repetition of news or fake news that's posted by others. Because all of this is directed by algorithms and they design the algorithms. So they are human creation in that sense. Well, that's I think it's a technology that the laws and, and, and even society is you know, trying to catch up with yeah. and the complexity of it. Um, let me finish asking you, Sam, um, what, what does this all mean for investigative journalism? I mean, if, if the law, you know, regardless of, of you know, uh, what intentions of people are, but the fact that it's so complex in balancing you know, privacy rights with defamation, uh, or rep, you know, reputation rights with freedom of expression, the advent of social media, what it's done to the traditional press, what it's done for investigative journalism. I mean, where does this all leave investigative journalism now today? Well, first of all, just on, on the point we were talking about there on social media, I think this is somewhere where all, all three of the, the people in the room here, Paul and, uh, and uh, Peter. Um, Peter and myself, yeah. sorry, um, can agree on. Um, I mean, so, social media has been claiming for years that they're not publishers, that they don't make editorial decisions. I think that is unsustainable, it's preposterous in the context of what's happened with the American election. I mean, you have got Twitter and Facebook essentially doing my job as a journalist and saying, we're looking at what the president is saying or what other people are saying. We're making an editorial judgment as to whether that actually stands up as being accurate or um, clearly a falsehood. And we're putting a message on the on the tweet or we're deleting it completely. I mean, what what is that if it's not editorial control? I mean, it's dressed up in other language, but 
why, why should that, as Paul says, be treated any differently to a letter to a newspaper or an, or an article in a newspaper? But I think that where, where all of this leaves um, journalism is that journalism is shrinking. Um, Paul's right. Um, advertising, and this is being accelerated by the pandemic, is heading towards um, the um, very small, really, the geopoly of um, Facebook and Google. Twitter is very small, really, in the comparison to those two behemoths. And so, therefore, there is the temptation for journalists and for journalistic organizations, for editors, to take the easy road, to simply go down the clickbait road or the sensationalism or a big screaming capitals headline about the weather that, you know, a, an apocalyptic flood that's going to wipe out Balamina tomorrow because lots of people will click on it. And, I mean, you know, as a, as a journalist, I'd be quite happy to see that being actionable, frankly, um, clickbait journalism, because um, that, that is not serving the public interest in any way. And so therefore, ultimately, I think this is getting to a point where the media is getting weaker. There was a point in London where the media was far too strong, the pre-Levison era. Um, you know, it's, you know it, it is indefensible. It's dangerous in a society when any one arm of a society, um, the courts, the, um, the, the, the media, politicians, anybody is too powerful and there's not a check on that power. That was the way it was. Um, the police in many cases were complicit with it and they weren't a check on that power. Um, that's not really the case now. Certainly in Belfast, it's not the case. I mean, I'm, I'm not so familiar with the situation in London, but there is a clear contraction here of the media. And so whereas, as Paul rightly says, if there is a one million pound um, uh, settlement involving Facebook, if there's a 10 million pound settlement involving Facebook, it's water off a duck's back. Um, that is something they can easily bear. The media can't bear that increasingly. And so where does that ultimately go? Um, I think it, um, it means that there will be important stories that simply aren't told. They may well stand up in court, um, and Peter may, may, may well be right about that. There's good defenses, but there'll be smaller journalistic organizations, either traditional newspapers that maybe go online or something of that nature, um, or some of these new media organizations, which have very limited resources, maybe one, two journalists working together, <coughs> trying to get out stories that are niche, um, and they will simply not be told. Okay, well, listen, I'm conscious of the time. I could talk about this all day, but uh, in the interest of time, I wanted to say thank you all for joining, and uh, thank you all for listening. Keep safe. Goodbye. Thank you for hosting. Thank you.